0: now stand for the reading of God's Word. Our passage is Matthew chapter 1, the very first words of the New Testament. Uh, that is page 855 in your Red Pew Bibles. If you didn't bring a Bible of your own, should be a Red Pew Bible that looks like this. If you want to hunt one of those up, it should be nearby. Turn to page 855. Again, it's Matthew chapter 1, the very first words of the New Testament.
1: This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Solomon, Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Asa, Asa the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Jehoram, Jehoram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amon, Amon the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jochaniah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shiatial, Shiatial the father of Jerobabel. Jerobabel, the father of Abihud. Abihud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Eliud. Eliad the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathen, Mathen the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the, mother, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus who was called the Messiah. Thus there was
0: a reader, she is like, I got Carrie, we're good, so that was wonderful, that was great. Uh, let's pray together as we come to God's word. <clears throat> Father, what we celebrate uh, in this time, the sending of your son, the breaking into human history of God himself, Lord, help us to remember that this, if you're new here, we usually start off with a question for kids. Uh, so the question is, is anybody excited about Christmas? That's like an easy one, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's finally here, like Christmas time is here, what you wait for all year. So here's a, a follow-up question here. What is the best thing about Christmas for you? Like a, maybe a favorite tradition, or just the, your favorite thing about Christmas? Watching off, off-brand. I like that just extra descriptor. Off-brand Hallmark movies. A wonderful tradition of the Christmas time. Ames. Gingerbread houses. That's a great one. Absolutely. Amelia. Okay, decorating the tree with the family. That's great. Yes, Eden. Baking cookies. Absolutely. Luke. The elf. Like elf on the shelf. Move around the house. That's pretty good too. Does anybody like to get the presents? Right? Yeah, you can say that. Okay? You know... Christmas is is one of those times of year that uh, man. There's just so much that goes into this season, you know, and our culture is is all in on it. You know, we we, we see it everywhere. It's, it lights the streets. It's uh, have you noticed how all the commercials begin to change? They actually start that about in October, sometimes even earlier than that. And so this this is kind of a you know we come into this celebration that's really huge in our culture. And one of the things about this time is that for many of us, it's a time that like just brings all this nostalgia with it. You know, for some of us, we get so excited about the traditions and the things that we get to do, you know, the gingerbread houses, the presents, the the traditions that maybe we have as a family, and, and we get excited about all these different things. But one of the challenges is oftentimes we forget what it's really about that oftentimes we get into this place where we're just chasing that nostalgia. Maybe it was something we felt whenever we were children, and we're kind of chasing that. If you're an adult, you're trying to, trying to get back into that experience, that holiday spirit, you know, to touch something that, that felt uh, real way back in your story. Now, for others of us, this season is not nostalgic at all. For others of us, this is a really hard time. This is a time that reminds us of loss. It reminds us of things in our life that are incredibly painful. And so for probably all of us, we kind of tend to one of those two Some of us are like, oh, this is the most wonderful time. I have all these expectations. Others of us, it's a time of uh, hardship, difficulty, sadness. As we move into our Advent series, and by the way, we keep using that word Advent. Advent is the historical, traditional uh, uh, word for this this season in the church of the four Sundays leading up to uh, the day of Christmas where we celebrate the birth of Jesus. And so Advent, the word Advent means appearing or coming. And so it's a time where we look back to Jesus' first coming, we look ahead to His second coming. So this is the season that we're in as the church. Now, <clears throat> one of the things that's, um, that we, we're going to move into, and we're going to start a new Advent series today. And, and what I want to call this Advent series is, As Far as the Curse is Found. Which is a line, of course, from the wonderful hymn, Joy to the World. Where it says, Jesus has come to make His blessings flow As far as the curse is found, this idea that the coming of Jesus means the blessing and healing of every corner of brokenness in the whole world, including every corner of brokenness in your own heart and in your own story. And that is what we celebrate in Advent. So what I want to call us, whether we're someone who gets all into the nostalgia or where we're someone where we're like, bah humbug, I just want this to be over, okay? I'm sick of the Christmas music. No matter where you are on that, here's what I want this series to call us to. This is about the joy and hope of Christ. So no matter if you're in a place of real sadness and pain, the hope of Christ just lifts us in that time. And if you're, if you're one who gets caught up in the nostalgia, it calls us back to like, wait, there's something far more substantial and significant than jingle bells. Okay, so that's what we're going to see in our Advent series. So let's jump into our passage here today. And we're going to, in our Advent series, we're just going to walk through the, uh, the the first few chapters of Matthew in our Advent series. Now, one of the things about Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus is it gives us such a picture of how Jesus comes right into the very heart of the brokenness of this world. And it's amazing, as we walk through the story, we're going to see just how dark the world was in this day when light, when light dawns into that place of darkness, which gives us hope for our own darkness. But here we are, we're starting off, and Matthew, interestingly, doesn't start with a nativity. He starts with a genealogy. Now, if you're someone that's done any reading of the Bible, and especially if maybe you, were, you grew up and you read the King James Version, you know, this is one of those chapters that you just fall asleep on, Right? It's the begats. You, you know, if you're, if you're familiar with that, you know, such and such, begat, such and such. I mean, this is not that much better, right? I mean, yeah, I understand a little bit more they were the father of, but begat, begat, begat. You know, if you're in the Old Testament, you run into one of those. That's usually where your reading plan dies for the year, right? When you get to the genealogy. And so we come to this, and it can kind of be like, what? what's the point? Did you have that feeling as she was reading this? What's the point? What, what are we going to get in here? What, is there anything to preach on in this part here? And the beautiful story is there absolutely is. This passage just blows me away when I see what Matthew's doing. So here's the thing to understand. In the ancient world, the genealogy was like a resume. You know, to, in, in the ancient world, it was very patriarchal, it was very rooted in your family and your ancestors, and that was your story. Your identity came from who came before you, who your family was, what they had done, what had those people done in your line. You know, we're kind of in the Western world, we're very individualistic, and we don't even probably know much at all about our great-grandparents, much less anywhere beyond that. But in the ancient world, it was everything. It was who you were. It was your resume. It was your status. Here's who I am. And so Matthew wants to start you with saying, here's who he was. And he's walking us through this genealogy. And he mentions two prominent ancestors for Jesus. Right off the bat in verse 1, we see this. A record of the genealogy of Jesus, Christ, the son of David, The son of Abraham. And that's where he starts the genealogy. Now question. What's the big deal about Abraham and David? Why is it so important that that we know that Matthew wants us to be clear that Jesus is the son and descendant directly of Abraham and David? Why is that so important? Well you need to know something about the Old Testament. And the whole Old Testament is built on two promises That God makes one each to David and to Abraham. You see, way back in the book of Genesis, God comes to Abraham. This guy who's in his upper 80s. He's got no choice. And I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And through your seed, your descendant, I am going to bless all nations of the world. Huge blessing, especially coming to a guy in his upper 80s. And the book, the Bible, is all about God bringing that promise to fulfillment. So, Matthew's wanting to say, yeah, yeah, you remember that? You remember that promise to Abraham? Jesus is God making good on that promise. But then also, God comes to David much later, maybe a thousand years after Abraham, and God comes to David when he's king over Israel. And he says, David, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And one of your sons is going to sit on your throne, and his throne will never end, and it will fill the whole world. And through him, I will usher in the kingdom of God. I'm going to transform the whole world through his reign. Right in the the reading that we heard from Amelia right at the beginning of our service was a prophecy from Isaiah 9, it's a part of that prophecy. That the son of David, that the government would be on his shoulders. And that the increase of his, of his reign and rule, there will be no end. Worldwide peace, the transformation of all things. It's quite literally the biggest promise you could ever imagine. God says to David, one of your sons, through him, I'm going to change the whole world. I'm going to fix everything that's broken in this world. Justice is going to roll down like a mighty river. Peace will fill the whole earth. My glory will saturate the whole world. Huge. You see what Matthew's saying? All that long list. Three sets of 14. Well, what's the big deal about 14? Well, 14 is a double seven. Now, seven is kind of important in the Bible, right? It's the perfect number. You see what he's saying? He's showing us the perfect symmetry of God's plan. It's a way of him saying, listen, he's controlling the whole thing. He has been at work in every detail. Every begat that took place was by God's careful planning and purpose. In fact, he's fulfilling something that he planned before he even made the world. And all of it centers on the person of Jesus. That's what he's showing us here. Jesus has come to bring all God's promises to fulfillment. And all of human history turns and centers on the person and arrival and work of Jesus Christ. See how big that is? It's huge. So that's his resume. He is the son of Abraham. He is the son of David. But there's something else to see in this genealogy that just blows your mind. I don't know if you noticed this whenever Carrie was reading through this so wonderfully. But it mentions five women in the genealogy. It's very interesting. It's not by mistake. Matthew's up to something here. You see, in the ancient world, you did not include women in a genealogy. Because especially in such a patriarchal society, the uh, the succession, the inheriting of land, the inheriting of a throne, Jesus is royalty. That's a part of what Matthew is saying. He is the king. Because he is descended from David, will you go through the male line there. There's no reason to mention a female in this particular purpose here. But Matthew goes out of his way to mention five women. Ancient, Ancient genealogies did not do this. What is he up to? He's dropping some clues about exactly what Jesus came to do. Now, look at who he mentions here. The first one he mentions in verse 3 is Tamar. Look again. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Okay, well, who's Tamar? Well, you need to know that story from Genesis 38. Judah, who's in the line of Jesus here, uh, was a son of Jacob. Uh, um, Judah uh, has a son who is married to Tamar. Well, he dies. She becomes a widow. She's not conceived a child. And so, in order to conceive a child, she dresses up like a prostitute. And her father-in-law, Judah, sleeps with her. She conceives and has a child. So, what do we got there? We got uh, some prostitution going on, and we have some incest going on. What the heck is going on? Why do you put that in a genealogy? What else does he show? Look at what we see here in verse 5. Verse 5. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Okay, well, who's Rahab? Well, you need to know that story. Go back to Joshua 2. Whenever the spies of Israel come into uh, Jericho, they're spying out the land. Somebody tips them off. Rahab was a Canaanite. She was a prostitute. Do you hear a theme here? And she brings them into their house and protects them. And they make a covenant with her. Your family will be saved whenever we invade Jericho and she actually converts to Israel but she's a Canaanite and a prostitute Matthew what are you doing here next we have Ruth Now we just talked about that our fall sermon series was all about the book of Ruth what do we learn about Ruth Ruth was a Moabite who was the mortal enemies of the Israelites an outsider why do you put her in there Again, building this picture about the purpose of Jesus. Then we have David. Look at what he says in verse 6. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now this is a masterful little (coughs) literary note here. Her name was Bathsheba. But he doesn't say her name. Not as a slight to her, because he wants to draw you back into the reality of the story. Now, this is a story about David in 2 Samuel 11, where David, when his army is off to war, he sees the wife of one of his top military commanders bathing on a roof. His heart lusts after her, he sends for her, he brings her, he commits adultery, and then to cover his tracks, he puts Uriah, her husband, his most loyal commander, On the front lines of the army. So that he would be cut down in battle. So we got adultery. It's just the Holy Spirit. Nothing going on here. No premarital sex going on here. Just Holy Spirit. No. It's the only way we're saved. It's the only way we're made right. With the Father. Entirely. 100%. By grace. You get there. Through your brokenness. It is our need. That makes us fit. For the salvation of God. Anyone. Absolutely anyone. Can be a part of Jesus' family. If they will repent. And believe the gospel. So the genealogy itself. Is giving us this amazing picture. Of the heart of the work of Jesus. That it is all by grace. That he came for the broken. And he comes right into the middle. Of the most broken places of our hearts. And our lives. To bring his grace. And to bring his rescue. And Matthew wants you to see that. Right here in the genealogy. So how does this apply to us? Let's bring it home in our lives. So here's a question. Where's the brokenness in your life? Where's the brokenness. In your life. Can you see it? Can you identify it? Or are you too busy. Minimizing. And justifying yourself trying to put yourself together, hiding, running, where in your life do you feel the depths of that brokenness? Where in your life do you feel most weak? Where in your life do you feel like you've blown it? Where in in your life do you feel like, I'm just getting owned by this in my life? Where do you feel shame in your life? Where in your life has life not turned out the way that you had hoped or expected? You know, those are the very areas that so often we think are a barrier to the work of God in our life. You know what I'm saying? We think that area, that struggle, that thing I'm struggling with, that thing I can't get over, that is the thing that's blocking me from God. So what I got to do is I got to fix it. If I want to get to God, I got to fix this. I got to get it together. I got to deal with it in order to get to God. I so naturally think this, that the only way for me to get right with God, whenever I see My sin, whenever I see the way that my heart just runs after the things in this world and how I put them in the place of God, like daily, whenever I see my struggles with people pleasing and and fear of man, whenever I see these struggles to like escape in my heart that, like, I wish I could fix. I've been trying to fix for a long time, I can't fix it. I'm still struggling. In those areas of my life, deep down, I feel like, God, in order to fully come to you, i got to fix this in my life. I can't just come like this. Can you resonate with that? But here's what I want to ask right here. What if those areas of brokenness and struggle in our life, what if those are the very areas God wants to meet us with His grace? What if those are the very areas... Where we have a chance to see. I can't do it. I'm broken. I can't fix myself. I can't clean myself up. I got to be rescued. I need a savior. What if those are the yourself. And the end of your resources. And the end of your strength. And you actually meet Jesus. You know that's how grace works. Grace is for sinners. It's not for righteous people. If you're righteous or you think you're righteous or you think you're almost there, you're getting close, grace just doesn't do much for you. But if you're utterly broken and you realize there's something in your life that is just showing you I am in desperate need of rescue, that is the place where you meet and you discover and you receive grace. That's where we get changed. That's how this applies. See, he's not saying clean up to come to me brokenness. Brokenness to bring light and transformation. And so I wonder if God is just saying to you, I want to go in there. I want to come with my grace into that place in your life. You see, this is the hope and the meaning of Advent. Of the coming of Jesus. The grace of Jesus is for us in the most broken places of our life. And that is the exact place. He wants to appear. He wants to show up. And he wants to come with his transforming grace in our life.